Let's face it, if you're active, the risk of injury is always present, meaning if we push ourselves too hard, we're just one accident away from crushing medical expenses. Not to mention less time doing the stuff that we love, struggling with our mental health. You know, injuries are so much more than the actual injury. That's why Spot partners with ski resorts like Telluride uh, and organizations like the USA Cycling, and they work with events like Red Bull Last Stand to offer injury insurance with lift tickets, memberships, or race registrations. Spot easily integrates with any booking platform and does all the heavy lifting to ensure guests are covered. They also have a really cool individual plan that's only $25 a month, and it's specialized towards covering people that do gnarly stuff because it's really hard to get insurance companies to cover us if we're doing dumb stunts. Um, with Spot, if your customer or if your event attendee, uh, competitor ends up getting hurt, Spot will cover up to $25,000 of their out-of-pocket medical bills per incident with zero deductibles. With Spot, all of your customers can focus on a full and quick recovery so they can get back to their best lives and you are also covered. It also allows you to be covered as an individual because we know that medical expenses can be super hectic, especially if you love to travel and do dumb stuff. Visit outofbounds.getspot.com to partner with Spot and kind of get the ball rolling on some awesome coverage for your business and your community. Um, yeah, that's learn more at outofbounds.getspot.com. Asama dudes, it is Monday. I wonder if you're sick of hearing that yet and if I should come up with a new intro, but you know, I'm a creature of habit, so here we are. Um, my name is Tori Anderson. You can find me at Tori Aelina and my co-host and best friend for life, Renee McCurdy, at Renee McCurds on Instagram. We are two of five co-founders of the Tang brand, and we are graciously blessed to be bringing you our gab and bullshit on the Out of Collective, uh, you know, podcast platform. It's freaking dope. Adam's the man. Um, anyways... We're stoked to be here again today, and if you guys are stoked to be here, we would love it if you could take a moment to leave us a review, a dad joke, whatever your heart desires. Tell us some fire caption that you saw on some weird social media platform because social media runs our lives. It doesn't really matter, but if you feel up to leaving us a review, tell us you hate it, love it, we're here for it, um, that would really help us kind of evolve who this content reaches and help us push this movement forward. Um, Renee is going to talk about some dope stuff that we have on the podcast today and introduce our guest. She was unreal to talk about, and I'm so excited to hear what you guys think about this one. And if you have any recommendations of individuals with similar credentials or to help educate people on um, the topics we go over, we would love to hear it. So slip into our DMs and let us know. Uh, we are talking to Emily Sullivan today. She's living up in Alaska. She is the team captain for volley. And what's really cool about Emily is that she has always been kind of an outdoorsy gal, but only got into skiing around six years ago. And she's done it all in the backcountry. So it's really cool to hear her talk about that journey and getting comfortable and learning how to mitigate avalanche terrain. She now sits on the board of directors for Alaska Avalanche School, so we talk about that a little bit. And she is an advocate for climate with the Arctic uh, programs. In, and, so, and that's a grassroots program that she works for. So there's a lot of cool stuff in this episode, and we hope that you really like it. So in three, two, one, we're going to drop to Emily Sullivan. Emily, do you want to maybe like introduce yourself? Tell everybody who you are, all those dope accreditations that you emailed us. I was literally on the phone with my boyfriend this morning and I was like, I have to go. I have to call Renee because we're doing a podcast episode. And I opened up the emails like this chick is rad. That's some bad bitch accreditation. So <laughs> let everybody know who you are. And yeah. OK. Um, yeah, I'm Emily Sullivan. I am a backcountry skier. I'm an Arctic advocate. I live in Alaska on the lands of the Denaina peoples. Um, I am the team captain of the Volley Ambassador team and on the board of directors for the Alaska Avalanche School. Um, yeah, in the summertime, I, I pack raft and um, when I'm not injured, I trail run and that's pretty much me. 
I think there's more. There's more. We'll get to it. There's more. <laughs> We've got at least a half an hour to an hour to get to the more. <laughs> I'm like, what am I forgetting about myself? <laughs> we'll get there. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, I think, um, so the Avalanche School is sweet. The team captain, like, I want to know so much more about all of this. Like, how do you, how did you get involved as the team captain for Volley? Um, yeah, so that is a new position for me as of this year. I've been on their ambassador team for, I think, three, maybe going on four years. And, um it's, I guess it's kind of a fun story for me because I have not actually been skiing all that long as you two know. Um, and I appreciate that like Volet invited me to be an ambassador based on like some of my other strengths that I bring to the table. And, um, you know, I'm a ski photographer and a writer. And so some of those like other values of what I could bring to Volet as well as some of the like leadership that I just had as a teammate asked um I guess caused them to ask me to be the team captain this year and um it was a huge honor and I'm really enjoying it and one of the um I think one of my like proudest <clears throat> moments within the ski industry was coming on as team captain and seeing like all of these emails in my inbox from white men applying to be on the volley team and I was like you know, I remember when I reached out to Volet to be on the team and felt super like intimidated and like, they're not going to want me, but like, I'm going to try anyway. And thinking about how, you know, women and people of color and folks who have been systemically excluded from the ski industry might feel that way. Like I'm a rad skier, but I don't see anyone like me on any of these teams. And so I talked to my team manager at Volet and I was like, look, we need to add people to the team this year. And everyone in our inbox is white males. So we made an announcement that we wanted women and people of color to apply to the team. And we had a hundred applications come in like over the next couple weeks. And um, I'm probably going like way too far into my tangent, but it was super exciting. And we've added like six new teammates and they're all so awesome and they bring so much to the table. And so I really appreciate Volet for like appreciating what folks bring to the table besides just like being a rad skier. I think that's super important. I love that tangent. That was a good tangent. <laughs> You're like, how'd you become captain? I'm like, well, let me talk about. <laughs> but it was such a great tangent because I think that is really important that, you know, like you were seeing all these dudes that were applying, but there's a lot of people who didn't know that maybe they were wanted. And I've seen that in other parts of the industry, like magazines who put out and say, hey, we want more stories about women. We want more photos of women. And then, um, so this magazine editor that was telling me the story about how he started asking for more content from women and of women. And he said that it changed so much for them because then all these photographers were like, oh, well, I have it, but I just didn't know you wanted it. And they were sending in all this stuff. Now they have like twice as many female readership in it's been like five years since that that started and since they started having way more female content in the magazine they've doubled their female readership but the reaction that they first got was oh well I didn't even know that that's what you were looking for so I that's why we never sent it to you so it's kind of a similar thing to that where they're saying oh well you know like we didn't know that we were wanted but since you're looking for me, I'll send my my resume in and I'll see if you like it. Yeah. Totally. My uh, my friend, uh, Judy Kasiyama, she always says community starts with an invitation. And I think that's huge. Like community starts with an invitation. And that's what we're working to create with the Volley team is like a real community. So yeah, I call a certain vibe in, in the ski industry. You are always welcome, but you're not always invited. And I think that's something that we just constantly need to work at actually inviting. And it's really hard just as a human, like moving to a new place. And you know that people are stoked to ski with you if you run into them on the mountain, but they're not always going to invite you out with their crew every day because, because 
that's just how crews work. You have your people, but trying to diversify that and add people to your crew is something that I think just like in general as humans, we could be so much better at. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, um, I feel like having learned to ski as an adult, that was like a huge thing for me. Like I, okay. So (laughs) I was listening to your, um, interview with Abby and she's like 22. Right. And I was listening to it and I was like, I'm 33. So maybe like the oldest interviewee on this podcast and with the least year skiing, cause I started skiing when I was 26. Um, but just like starting at that age and like everybody who I knew who was out skiing was like, they were really good. They had grown up skiing since they were children. They had ski racing backgrounds and like it was hard to get, it was hard for me to break into that community because I was like brand new to what I was doing and literally like 26 year old trying to learn to go from pizza to French fry. And um, I had this background as a, a backcountry guide in Denali Park. That was my summer gig for 10 years. And so I had all this experience with navigating the mountains and off-trail terrain and, you know, topo maps and a lot of skills that translated the backcountry, but I just didn't know how to ski. And so I wanted to get into the mountains in winter. And I saw all my friends out doing this cool ski touring thing. And I was like, well, I can snowshoe. (laughs) It's not really the same. Um, So I had to spend a lot of time like on my own. I mean, I had some incredible mentorship and for that, I'm super grateful, but I also spent a lot of time on my own, like skinning up snowball the ski area in missoula um skiing down before going to work and like practicing my ski turns and practicing my skinning all at once yeah i think it takes a lot to do that on your own too like a lot of perseverance and dedication to actually go out and progress by yourself because i know that i progress better when i'm with other people So to go out and just be dedicated to learning without having that support group all the time is definitely like worth being commended for. I feel like it, you know, a huge factor in my dedication to learning to ski is that it has had such a positive impact on my mental health. And in the winter, when I first went out and started ski touring, I was super depressed. I was in a really dark place in I've struggled with mental health like my entire life and had a lot of dark periods in my teens. And this was a particularly dark period in my 20s. But um, I was living in this place in the winter and the mountains were right there. And I was like, they felt inaccessible to me. And so I just had this goal of like wanting to be able to go out there and explore them. And um, so I'd get up every day super early. I'd skin up snowball before dawn. I'd ski back down. And then I I took a women's clinic that was like... um, Friday afternoons for a couple months at Snowbowl and and really developed my like downhill skills a little bit there and then kept going out to practice on my own. But that the mental health factor was like a huge motivator. I started feeling better. And I also have read about the gray matter that's created in your brain as you're learning new skills as an adult and that reward you get and that dopamine hit you get of like, you know, I've been doing all these other things my entire life. Like I've been an artist my entire life. I've been taking photos my entire life, but like suddenly here's this thing that's like very physical and very tangible. Like when I went from being able to just like ride a green run, green run to be able to like ride a black run and feel really strong and really good. Like that reward is so huge and such a positive um, thing for, you know, your mental health and your physical being overall. Yeah. I, um, the the learning new skill set thing i i learned how to skateboard at 26 years old <laughs> like showing up with all these little skate gremlins at the park wearing my helmet i was like sup guys i look like i'm 15 but it's fine um and being back in like a beginner's mindset and progressing and also being a beginner in that environment was very intimidating and the only reason that i kind of stuck it out was because of the girl crew that showed up. So like, I remember I showed up at the bonus skate park. I was the only one there. It was all dudes, like ranging from 12 years old to 30 years old. And then like 10 of the girls showed up for a skate thing and we just took over. And I remember we were talking about like IUDs and birth control at the top of the bowl before we're about to drop it. And these kids were just looking at us like, what is happening? (laughs) 
it was so funny, but the dopamine from like progressing is huge. But I think also having a supportive environment to progress in is also huge because if you're struggling with mental health, like you mentioned, it's hard to kind of achieve that perseverance and like you want to keep showing up in a non-inclusive environment. So like, do you have any tips on finding community? I mean, like womb tangs dedicated to that or how to like um, push through those moments where you feel like you might not belong to find other resources? Yeah, um, that's an awesome question. And I totally relate to like getting out with the girl crew, especially when you're like feeling that imposter syndrome. Like there's nothing better than like being around people who are encouraging you and are fun and you can relate to. And I definitely had a fair amount of that. Like my first season backcountry skiing, I had some awesome women who would take me out and, you know, they would show me how to dig a pit. And I'm sure I didn't retain anything, but it was like, oh, this is awesome. They're like showing me how to do this, but it's, it can be super hard to find. And, um, I also remember like going out with my boyfriend at the time and he was a real athlete and it wasn't that fun for him to like wait for me. And, you know, it wasn't encouraging and no like shade on him. I appreciate like the amount of patience he did have for me, but it can, like, you can feel like, well, I'm not good enough. I can't keep up with these people. I don't want to hold him back. And that's, I think, super common. So I think there's the like the one factor of just finding partners who are supportive of you. And on the flip side, when you have the skills of being that partner that's supportive of new folks, like, I yeah, like I love my rad days out with my crew where we like hammer out a bunch of laps in the backcountry. But I also love taking people out who are newer and showing them what I learned because I have to pay that forward. In terms of like other resources, I think it's awesome how much is becoming accessible online, you know, as we shift to a lot more people getting into skiing and a lot more people, especially getting into backcountry skiing. I'm seeing a lot of, uh, you know, articles and resources for beginners on the internet, but there nothing really replaces going out and learning in the mountains and like hands-on learning. So I actually have taken over the last, however many years, I guess, six, seven years, like a fair number of courses. I took, uh, mountaineering course with Alaska Mountaineering School. I um, had a formal mentorship with an avalanche professional in Montana. She took me out and showed me a ton. I took my rec level two with the Alaska Avalanche School, Um, spent a lot of time reading, staying alive in avalanche train. Like I know that's not fun, but it's super important. And so um, the problem with classes is they can be super expensive. There's a lot of scholarships out there. I use scholarships for a few of my classes and those were great ways for me to get out like I really wanted to learn mountaineering skills I live in Alaska there's a lot of glaciers a lot of the places I want to ski and um, tour you know you need those rescue skills you need to know how to use a rope you need to know um, how to navigate that terrain and so that mountaineering course with Alaska Avalanche School is actually I went out there to learn those skills and that's where I actually strapped on skis for the first time as an adult and like linked my first turns. I was like in mountaineering boots on Silverado bindings. And I was like, oh shit, like this is something I really need to learn to do. Like I need to bring all these skills together. So um, that class pushed me into like figuring out how to become a skier too. That's so wholesome. <laughs> like that was like your your moment that like got you started, I guess. It oh my gosh. Like- I. After this, I'm going to send you to this picture of me out there. My friend who I met on the course was like, she was a good skier. And she was like linking these turns and kind of explained to me what to do on skis. And I like, it's like waiting my ski trying to turn. And I just kept falling down. And we're on this like really chill slope, like, like, I don't know, 15 degree, like barely downhill. And eventually I linked three turns, but I had kept falling down and I bent my pole in like one of these falls. So there's this picture of me like linking, like I linked three turns and I'm like, my arms are in the air. I'm like screaming. I'm so happy. My pole is bent. And I get get down my friend has this picture of me and she's like, pole is bent. Stoke is high. And I was like, yes, I'm learning to ski. I'm doing this. That was so awesome. (laughs) Oh my God. That's so good. Pole is bent. I have a bunch of random tattoos on my body. One of them on my bad knee is not broke, just bent. And it's in like really horrible handwriting. But I feel like that's also a great way to describe. (laughs) Pole is bent, stoke is high. (laughs) So encapsulating. Um, I wanted to like bounce back and touch on scholarships quickly because 
that that like socioeconomic and economic barriers to being able to enter these sports is huge. So, I mean, you're um, you're in the United States, but how did you find scholarships? Like, where was your first research source? Ooh, um, so I had access to some Alaska specific scholarships. Um, yes, I'm in the U.S., but I'm in this like weird state in the U.S. that is separate from everything. So we have all our own stuff. It's like if you're an Alaska resident, you can apply for the scholarship. Um, I know the American Alpine Club has quite a few, um, and there's we're, there's more and more out there for like people who are just learning, who are in these systemically excluded communities. Um, Volet had two scholarships this year um, for people of color and one for women that's going on right now. And, oh, yes. Okay, so everyone needs to go to It's Lulu Avila on Instagram. She is putting together a master list of scholarships. And a conversation I've had with her is like, all these scholarships are out here, but like people of color and like people who are new to these sports don't always know how to find them because they're not in those communities. So she's doing, I forget what she's calling it. It's like the outdoor inclusion project maybe, but she's making these master lists of scholarships. So if you're looking for a scholarship to learn to climb, to learn to ski, to get this AVI education, um, Lulu is putting together this awesome resource. So I would say check that out. Yeah, we'll have to look into that because then we can put it in the show notes as well. So it makes it easier for people to find if they're looking to access that information. Yeah, that'd be huge. One of our, our goals with Woomtang is uh, to develop our own scholarships in partnership with brands to help get people uh, the resources, equipment, like any of the academic research I've looked at to reduce barriers and increase like diversity, equity, and inclusion talks about increasing access to community resources, support, education, like all those basic fundamentals that usually leave people feeling like they they don't belong, but then also changing what those look like, which I think would be a really cool thing to dive into um, with your current credentials. So like being on the board of directors for Aval Alaska Avalanche School, how did that happen? Like, what has that been like for you? And was that always a goal? Oh, it definitely was not always a goal. It wasn't really even on my radar. So uh, my first couple winters skiing, I was in Montana. Um, and I already kind of touched on what that was like. And then I was seasonal at that time between Alaska and Montana. Then I moved up here full time and started getting really, um, you know, a little more settled in the Anchorage area and getting a little more ingrained in the community, the backcountry skiing community. And, um, was just going out and like being really consistent with like, taking observations and reading the forecast and kind of being like a contributor to that um, side of like the community snow observations. And I took my rec level two with the Alaska Avalanche School. And while I was out there, I my experience as a student sort of just like inspired me to inquire about being on the board just because I wanted to be more involved in the organization. And I work full time for a nonprofit. So I have um, that side of experience in nonprofits and I wanted some experience on a board. So I kind of just reached out to a couple of folks I knew on the board and they were like, oh my gosh, we'd love to have you and made the recommendation to the rest of the board that I join. Um, and that's how it happened. Not very exciting. Um, and then what's our second part of your question? I forgot. Sorry. <laughs> No, it's okay. I feel like we, I, I talk too much. And so I'm trying to like, shut up and let Renee come in. But then we've like, both just look at each other. And we're like, who's going to talk? Is That's anybody like, going to talk? That's <laughs> the downside of having more people is that it's, I'm like, is Tor going to say something? <laughs> I know. So like, for the first half of our conversation, I was like, I'm just gonna, Renee's in the flow. She's in the zone. So I'm just going to let her have at it. And then I jumped in. But um, <laughs> we're uh, working on our own dynamics here. Yes. The anyway. evolving narrative of we don't actually know what we're doing. Um, anyways, I think like the, the second part of that question was um, like, what has it been like being on the board of directors? And you, you mentioned previously in like our pre-interview thing that uh, – the Alaskan Avalanche School is actually quite diverse in their management team, which I think is super cool. And yeah, so what what's that like? 
Yeah, I mean, I think we definitely have um, gender diversity going for us. I want to yes. like, sorry, my bad. To, yes, no, no, no. <laughs> I just want to be sensitive to the fact that that's like we're also a lot of white people. Um, but we have a lot of um, really strong leadership from women on our team, both on the board and um, our executive director is this incredibly badass woman, um, Melis Cody. Shout out Melis. She took me on my um, first base or on my a base camp patrol up on Denali a couple years ago. Um, where I was like a volunteer on her rescue team and just seeing her out in the mountains is like super, super inspiring. So she's a badass climber, skier, incredible outdoor educator. And she's been the executive director for the Avalanche School for, I think, um, four years now. And we're um, just really blessed to have her leadership. But we also have some strong women on the board of directors. So our executive team on the board of directors is um, myself, two other women, and one dude. And so we've got uh, president, vice president, and secretary are all women, which is awesome because we're up there like at the top making the big decisions along with everyone else. But yeah, it's cool. I just want to say that gender diversity ratio is like unheard of in the ski industry for executive <laughs> boards. Also in other executive boards, mm -hmm. like um, I mentioned previously uh, that I did a like a research project with a professor for a like a published peer-reviewed white paper about the lack of diversity in uh, Calgary's experiential creative economy. So looking at like theaters, museums, all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't like, it was very difficult because you can't look at somebody's LinkedIn profile or look at their description and make assumptions on like, you know, their gender identity, or you can't really know like what their, um, ethnicity is and like there are certainly gaps in the way that we collected data but the overarching analysis showed that there tends to be more white masculine like white male cis heteronormative dudes in positions of power within patriarchal societies and that is also reflected in the governance boards of different organizations so even though there could be an increase in like other types of diversity to still see an underrepresented group in the ski industry kind of you know, that level of decision-making power is huge. That's so rad. That gives me like hope. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. And I also like, just want to make a plug that like we have, so we have like 14 people on the board right now. Um, the majority are men, but like we mentioned the, the executive committee is mostly women. Um, and I am, you know, pretty impressed that like when we all meet, like the amount of input that is coming from women is like pretty significant. So there's 14 voices there. There's a lot of like competing for space in some ways to like get a word in in our meetings. And um, I'm impressed with like how often that person taking up space on the board is a woman. So I think that's awesome. It's so important to see women taking up space and like unapologetically taking up space because that's what we have been lacking before but if we can have more boards like this where we start to see more women in those spaces and speaking up for our experiences because we're not all the same we all have different experiences so the more variety you get the more people that you will reach so i don't know that's my little soapbox so true yeah <laughs> But having like a, a, div, a diverse governance board, um, you know, like we talking to businesses, for example, uh, talking about how, what was the magazine, Renee, that didn't have a lot of female content? Oh, um, uh, Forecast Magazine. So yeah, this was like five, six years ago, and then they put out the call out and now their female readership has doubled. So I think, yeah, it's. Yeah, whatever. but like putting the call out, getting like, uh, female creators to contribute the same thing is involved in any type of business decision so like realistically a white cis heteronormative guy is not going to be able to make decisions to innovate their business strategy and communications that will authentically connect with a group of people and encourage them to be involved and I saw this with a a consulting uh, client that I had it was a group of men that engineered a product for menstrual cramps and marketed it and it, it's revolutionary it was a spin-off of uh like lens 
heated socks. The same engineers made this product because their wives and daughters really struggled with menstrual cramps. So it's taking menstrual cramp um, pain relief on the go. It's like a heating element over your uterus in a battery pack, which is so dope because I've struggled with them my whole life. But they originally wanted to like bring it into Canada. So the distributors were looking for ambassadors because that was their strategy to help increase like awareness of this product. And when I had the meeting with them, because my dad recommended me for it, I looked at their website and I was like, honestly, I would not buy this product. And they were like, why? And I was like, uh, because the branding's really uncomfortable. It looked like a medical product and there was old white dudes all over the like um, the page. And it was just like these stock photos that looked like they were from Walmart and it is a $400 product. And I was like, this does not speak anything to something I'd want near my reproductive organs at all, like not even a little bit. And so then I pitched all these ideas to them on how they could innovate it just in the first conversation. And then they called me and they're like, do you want a job? I was like, sure. <laughs> and then I helped them develop this strategy. But it was interesting. After I developed the strategy, they ended up taking my strategy to the heads of the business in Austria who have been really struggling to get their product to take off within a specific market. And it's because it was made by men, marketed by men, trying to appeal to women, but they didn't understand the experience. And that is so crucial in being able to like offer authentic messaging, authentic solutions and actionable, you know, like engagement is like, you have to diversify. There's so much research behind the value of diversifying, it's insane. Yeah. And I think like to your point, I mean, it really needs to be from, I know this is a common thing that's talked about, but like, it really needs to be from the top down. It can't be a bottom up thing. I've been in a couple positions in the nonprofit world where I've been like really pushing from like a junior level position to like work towards diversity and inclusion in the orgs I'm at. And it's like, it really has to be coming from leadership to, to go anywhere and to also like have that organization or that, um, company bought in. But I also think in the, in particularly in the avalanche world and part of why I'm like pumped about the female leadership on our board and within our school, cause we have some amazing women instructors as well. Um, is that, especially like in the backcountry and in backcountry skiing, like being a woman as a decision maker is like this whole other dynamic. So I was, you know, I ski with um, a couple like regular groups, like some really badass women and some dudes that I get out with a lot. And it took me a long time to like find partners who really respected my voice. Like I'm an assertive person. I have since like my first season in the backcountry been like an active decision maker in the group. Like I was never really the kind to just kind of follow along. Um, I remember going out with a friend in Montana who was a guide and being like, why are we going this way? Like, what? why are we choosing this ridge? And like my other friend in the group was like, man, I'm so impressed that you like question that and don't just like go with it. And I, I somebody taught me that really, really early on. And I think it's super important, but sometimes the dynamics like you know, I get up on top of a ridgeline with my group and we're about to drop this big line. And so there's a lot of factors here, right? Like one, I'm a woman. Two, I have um, less ski experience than my partners, even if I have as much backcountry experience, which is kind of a funny thing, but um, I'm not as good of a skier. And then three, like I have a little bit more avalanche education than some of my partners. So here's this like we're on the top of the line and I'm like, you guys, I'm not sure about this slope. Like, let's talk about it. And then it took me a while to find the people who really respected that and appreciate it. And like my, my best partners now, the people I get out with most, they're like, if I tell them I'm scared, they're like, cool, let's talk about why. Like I'm pushing myself. Like I'm skiing like big cool wires. I'm like skiing some, starting to ski some spines. I've been like really, really pushing my skills in this way where like, I get to the top of something, I have to think about, am I scared because I'm pushing myself or am I scared because this is dangerous? And there's that like really, really fine line and having those conversations with my group and having people who understand like, no, Emily's smart. She's taking the time to think about this and she's questioning it because like she values all of our safety and like what today, how today is going to end up for all of us rather than being like, oh, Emily's scared. Because I've been in that position like with my partners where it's like, okay, she's just scared or like, you know, I, I one time was getting out with some friends, getting into some bigger terrain and, and had like a little bit of a panic attack that was actually completely unrelated to what we were doing. I just had a friend like have a, a pretty major like medical 
issue and that was like creeping into my head and and those partners were like not understanding of what was going on with me and so finding those partners who like value you as a whole person and not like you as a woman skier or you as a newer skier but like you as a person who's like smart can make decisions and can contribute factors I just think is huge I've gone on another tangent <laughs> more good tangents <laughs> Your tangents are great. They're, they go somewhere. <laughs> I, I also think podcasts just, it's literally just a long tangent. That's what we do. It's like Perfect. I can handle together. that. <laughs> yeah. Like we yeah. don't have to try and change the topic. You just do it for us. And then we have this brand new thing to talk about that is amazing. <laughs> yes. Um, anybody that's listening to this right now, if you want to learn more about like uh, toxic masculine traits, and uh, like this idea that showing emotion like that is seen as weakness, like, oh, they're just scared. They're just being feminine. There's a really good uh, book written by Victoria Bromley and chapter nine, Don't Men Count Two, talks about toxic masculinity traits relative to the patriarchy and how they're systemically taught to young boys. And so that culture in hyper-masculine environments it's kind of like an echo chamber so it's teaching you that showing emotion all those kinds of factors is seen as weakness and toxic masculinity basically states you have to be absolutely everything that is the polar opposite of femininity to be accepted by your peers and the echo chamber supports that by validating men when they do not show emotion if they show toxic masculine traits like aggression like uh less risk adversity all that kind of stuff so like there's also a lot of research, as we've discussed in previous episodes, about the the benefits of having women and in the backcountry because they do slow down and think. They do process things differently. And so it's changing that narrative, like you just said, which is so freaking awesome. It's like they're not just scared. Like that is a toxic masculine projection of your understanding of somebody's emotions and your own emotions. And um, it's important to understand that society has taught men to be this. It's not their fault. Um, but deconstructing it means that they will be safer in the backcountry, which is freaking huge. Yeah. And also, like, even if you are just scared, like, that's okay, too. And also important to listen to. Like, so there's like Emily's, you know, okay, so I'm at the top of the line. Like, am I scared because I like maybe I'm not ready to ski this? That also needs to be communicated because like once you start skiing down that slope, there's no turning back. And so I think you know, being okay with that. And um, gosh, I just have so much appreciation for my partners who like, I'd be apologizing. I'd be like, sorry, I just feel like we need to talk about this again. We're like booting up this ridge. I'm like, I don't know. And they're like, well, don't be sorry. Like, let's talk about it. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're saying this. And that is like such a shift that we need in our culture. And especially in the back country where like these decisions can be life and death. And anybody who has any concern just like needs to start being able to speak up and we need to normalize that that is not weakness that's actually strength it takes a lot of courage to be like hey you guys like we need to talk about this before we drop in because there might be another group that's about to drop in too and there's this like competitive thing to get first on the line and whatever but if there's so much at stake it's not about who drops first it's about who drops smartest and so i think taking the time to make that happen that is such a good line. It's not about who drops first. It's about who drops smart. Is there so many bangers that you were whipping out today that I feel like I need to write down? <laughs> or maybe it should be like, who doesn't drop? Because sometimes it's like, yeah, dropping is not the smart move. But no, yeah, it's it's there's just so many dynamics when you're getting into like backcountry skiing and big terrain. And up here in Alaska, we're skiing alpine like all year because we have very little tree skiing. And so it's yeah there's just so many decisions that go into every day yes a hundred percent I actually just found a quote about what I was talking about in Victoria Bromley's book and I just want to read it quickly because it really like encapsulates what we've been talking about and why this is such a prevalent problem in the backcountry but um this section is called what do we know about masculinities and she says uh, much of what we know about men and masculinities we learn from popular culture sports video gaming, movies, television, music, and music videos. These medias tell us how boys and men should act, look, and think. Boys and young men are taught what it means 
sorry, taught what it means to be a real man from watching and emulating other men in their lives and in popular culture. Especially influential are male professional athletes, entrepreneurs, celebrities, politicians, soldiers, policemen, and criminals, because those fit within certain stereotypes of typical masculinity that we see depicted. And that's like the warrior, the entrepreneur, all that kind of stuff. So being in those influential places in the backcountry as a leader of your group, if you are emulating toxic masculine traits, um, you're going to advocate to other men in your environment that that is appropriate. And that's also why it's really important for professional athletes, guides to really focus on deconstructing these biases internally, just help stop spreading that culture. I love that. And I, I think too, like in all the ways that, you know, we as women um, and the ways that people who are underrepresented in the industry then often get pitched into these like where we're competing against ourselves environments because of the way like toxic masculinity creeps into all aspects of the space. Um, I think it's super important for us to keep our head on a swivel for that too. Cause like when I'm, when am I as a woman like competing with other women and how can I make sure that I'm lifting the women around me up and I'm making safe spaces for them to make decisions and have their voice heard um, is huge as well. Yes, 120%. We've, uh, we've talked about that a lot. And Renee and I have been honest with ourselves about internalized misogyny that we've had towards other women that we didn't realize we were taught to believe. And I think that's part of being a minority in a dominant masculine group because you're taught femininity is weakness. So you suppress your femininity to appear more masculine, which means you inherently put down other people that are showing femininity. And it's work that all of us have to do. Totally. And especially I think in the guiding, well, I'm sure it's true of any space, but in my experience with like rescue and guiding, like there's um, sometimes this feeling like, oh, I have this opportunity. I have to take it. And I try to remember like, that's not always the case. Like when can I help share an opportunity with somebody else who might be trying to break in? Or like, when can I um, pay forward like the bits that have been passed on to me or like mentor someone who might want to take a step in the same direction who wouldn't have the opportunity otherwise. Yeah, I think that's, that's pretty awesome to like have that self-reflection aspect of it too, to sit back and say, well, you know, when can I give this to someone else? Cause that's the next step of this whole equation. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I think if we're like working to topple the patriarchy, we can't use other women as stepping stones. And sometimes that means giving opportunities up or sharing them. Um, and it like my background as a community organizer, I, I work in Arctic advocacy on um, environmental protections. And the the time that I've spent in those movement spaces has taught me that like even if the men are that out there are still being cutthroat or being toxic, we don't win by being like them. Like we win by making a cultural shift and supporting each other, holding each other up. And there's I just try to remember like there's more there's room for more than one rad chick in the pack in the backcountry group. Like I've had groups before where it's like I felt like, oh like this other girl is like competing to be like the one that feels like more competent or more brave or more strong and like why can't we both be brave and strong like why can't we both be, have fun build each other up and like continue to work towards that hell yeah <laughs> hell yeah oh uh, i would like to kind of go and dive in a little bit more to your learning to ski in the backcountry experience and with having so much focus on your avalanche education how has your choosing terrain shifted as you have developed as a skier? Because obviously the choices you're going to be making when you're new to skiing and learning to ski still in the backcountry are really going to affect the terrain choices that you're going to have compared to now where you're starting to ski, like you said, more couloirs, getting onto some spines because you have a bit more confidence in your ski ability to get into those areas and your avalanche education to ski those safely. But what did that look like when you were just starting? Yeah, that's an awesome question. I remember when I was first starting doing a lot of like skinning up the ridge and skiing back out the skin track. And that was the majority of what I did when I was skiing in Montana, like sticking to the ridge, sticking to the slope we ascended because we determined it was a safe ascent path 
And when we weren't skiing back out the skin track, we were sticking to like, you know, a lot of really mellow slopes, like truly below 30 degrees. And um, my risk tolerance was pretty low. I knew that I didn't know anything, so I didn't want to risk it. I mean, I certainly skied a little bit of avalanche train, but I did a lot of train mitigation skiing, really, really mellow stuff. And it was when I did start getting more confident in realizing I could ski steeper lines and I could ski bigger mountains that I started to like step out into avalanche train more. And that's when I decided to take my rec level two. I was like, I really need to piece these um, skills together a little bit more in a way that like tells me like, is the decision I'm making smart? Cause I really am spending a lot of time in avalanche train at this point um, in the Alpine and Alaska. And so that rec level two was certainly helpful. Um, but I also think just, again, spending the time with groups discussing everything that we're like on top of dropping into spending a lot of time, like really getting to know the avalanche forecast and, and following it like day by day. So I have like an intimacy with it has also been like a big help in that. But there was certainly a shift between that, like early skiing the skin track and then getting up here and skiing bigger stuff. And I think that rec level two really helped with some of my confidence and decision-making there. And for learning to ski primary, primarily in the backcountry, how would you suggest to others if they want to go that route? Because like we've discussed, like getting a touring setup, you get it and it's in some ways cheaper than getting a ski resort pass every single year. But how do you go about learning in that environment? Because there are a lot of people who have really strong opinions about learning or not learning in the backcountry. And what I, I know like, you can speak to your experience anyway. So, yeah, I have never had a season pass. I've never had a, a ski pass. I've, I've skied like a handful, like probably 10 days per season at resort over, on average over the last however many years. And, um, I do know that is unpopular. Like a lot of people are like, you should really learn at the resort. And it's true. You'll become a better skier if you are practicing at the resort and getting all that repetition. Um, but it's, it's not that accessible. I mean, the culture at the resort, I also think can feel exclusionary. I think it's expensive. Um, so in terms of learning in the backcountry, I think, um, yes, you need to have some understanding of the terrain you're getting on. You need to know how to pick a slope that is um, not below a large slide path and that is not steep because you need to know you're in terrain that is not going to slide on you or not going to um, cause problems. And so there is a level of like mentorship that's needed to at least get that knowledge. Um, but then it's like just, you know, riding those mellow slopes and taking your time and being okay with falling down. But that's another thing, like you're, you're not going off like anything with cliffs below you, like you're taking it really easy. Um, and I think it's important to know that like wiggling around in the backcountry on your touring setup, like for me, it was a loner setup and wiggling around in the backcountry was like, it was fine. It's like not going to develop your skills to a point where you're like ripping super confidently after like, you know, a season of doing it, but it's a great way to get out and just like enjoy the mountains and being outside. And I think it's accessible in that way. Yeah, I um, when Renee was telling me about that and talking about it, I, I thought about all these times where like, you know, I'm ski touring with friends and we're looking at a line and it's like, okay, identify your exit route if anything goes wrong. And it's like, can you ski that exit route? Can you get out to it? And I guess, like, what does that look like when you're learning as a difference? Because I, I grew up skiing and um, ski race for a bit. So what types of terrain are you skiing? What was the progression into differing terrain? Um, would you say you focused on like technical ability as much as you would in a ski resort? Just, I guess, tips for people on what that looks like. Yeah, um, awesome questions. And I think at first, like the terrain that I was skiing was, I mean, we were still, still skiing one at a time, you know, like doing best backcountry practices, but we weren't like identifying an exit route because we were seeing super mellow, like treed slopes that were like a, a safe ascent path and a safe descent path. Like we weren't putting ourselves out in, in bigger terrain. 
when I was progressing to bigger terrain, it was important that I knew my skills were on par for that. And like some of the terrain I ski now, like slough management is a huge thing. I don't ski fast enough to outski my slough. So I have to like make sure I'm either taking breaks at the right point or like taking a line where my slough's not going to take me out. And that is like, you know, a huge leap from where I was five, six years ago. Um, so it is, it's really important to like ground truth, like where is my skill set and what does that translate to? And that might mean like mellow tree slopes with no, um, run out issues. Like you're not below something that's going to slide on you. Um, it might mean in terms of like skill development. Um, yeah, my biggest thing was like t telling my friends, like, where can I improve? Like, what should I work on? And for the longest time for me, like I couldn't whole plant. Like I was like a robot. Like my upper body was just like going with my lower body down the slope. And I'm honestly like still working on my upper lower body separation. It's like a long journey for me. But so my friends like telling me and taking videos of me and I'm looking at myself and I'm like, okay, how do I look different from everyone else? What do I need to work on? And having that learner's mindset, because I think, you know, it's pretty easy to go out and be like, okay, I just want to noodle around. Like, I just want to take it easy. But if you do want to progress, like you need to have that learner's mindset and be humble and be like, where can I improve? Where can I learn? And to be honest, like the most learning and developing I've done has been when I take a few resort days and follow my friends around. And like, I'm right behind them. I'm like, okay, their body is like this. I'm going to make my body like that. And I feel like, so I like, I can be behind them and like, feel myself like, oh, I'm getting better. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Like I'm getting lower. I'm skiing faster. And it's me emulating the person I see in front of me. So I guess that's a little bit of like overlap where you, you do need to like maybe embrace a few resort days, but like, if you want to get out and just like noodle around, do that too. Love a good schnoodle. <laughs> I love that's what I call it. You know, like, especially when you see like those older guys that just like move their hips around more than anything and they make those like tiny little turns. Yes. I honestly like I can't do it, but I call it a schnoodle. <laughs> yeah. No, I actually have some friends who are a couple who are like masters of that. I have this like great videos of like skiing down glaciers with them where they're just side by side and they're like little hips are wiggling and I'm behind them like straight lining I'm like I do not know how you guys are doing this right now we're on like flat terrain yeah the schnoodle just like cracks me up <laughs> I know I feel like if you have shorter skis it helps I can do it on like my shorter touring setup kind of but not that good because I'm so small and my like you know over my skis but with the fat ones it's just like this isn't working <laughs> I think so, that's true the short skis help it does indeed big stick energy isn't always applicable in the back country <laughs> um <laughs> hey, short skis are so much better for kick turns though I was like oh, I'm on big stick energy should I tell them about my 158 mountaineering skis <laughs> no you know They're what so I <laughs> I had to have a real talk with myself after last year because uh, my setup last year was like a 178, 110 underfoot and I'm five foot four. And that's roughly like 164 centimeters for all our USA folk. Um, and I like, I would get so exhausted and my hip flexors were just, I pulled them like every second tour. I couldn't go over like six kilometers without being in excruciating pain. And then trying to ski really tight glades like rocky trees and i was just like you know what i think i need to like assess where big stick energy is applicable and big stick energy is not always the size of the ski it's the heart on the skis so there you go um oh, yeah. <laughs> so i this year i went down to 172 it's 99 in the waist and i got my first uh, like lightweight pin setup and holy yes. shit, it makes a difference. I was blazing up the trail and I even took my skins off without having to take off my whole ski because I had the atomic shift beforehand and I was like, call me Chris Rubens, let's go. And now that's <laughs> so key, dude. It's so awesome. I'm proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. It makes such a big difference. We were just like going up and I was like, in front of my boyfriend breaking trail and he was like who is she I was like I don't know but it feels good <laughs> it does feel good I and I'm like okay this is gonna get a little nerdy but I'm a big fan of taking the skins off without removing the skis like it is a huge time saver like if you're on top of a 
a windy ridge and it's like getting really gnarly up there and you need to get down fast like those fast transitions are super key for like big backcountry days I feel like um and so <laughs> some of this comes from um my schemo racing background which I I mentioned to you guys earlier like I when I was learning to ski that was actually one of the um places I got a lot of practice in Missoula we had these little community races um, that a friend of mine was putting on and he's like, Hey, these are really beginner friendly. You should come out and try them. And they were lap style ski mountaineering races. So you did as many laps as you could in an hour. And I was like, always, I was on a loaner ski setup from a friend. They were frame bindings, 22 pound ski setup. I weighed it. Cause I was curious. I was coming in dead last. Like they were cleaning the course when I was finishing. Like it was like, my first schemo race, my first season ski touring. Like I could barely downhill ski. And I was like, yeah, I guess I'll try it. And I'm like, I was out there next to my friend's kid. He was 13 and he was my like buddy for the whole race. We were kind of side by side and we're finishing up our lap, our, um, I don't know, second or third lap. And they're like, okay, it's 45 minutes. Like, this is about the cutoff. You guys can do one more if you want, or you can call it. And I'm like, Felix, what do you want to do? He's 13. He's like, let's go for one more. Let's go. I'm like, all right. So I start putting my skins back on to go up for one more lap. I'm like, all right, Felix, see ya. And I like take off waiting for him to catch up he never catches up. He never came. He was like, let's do one more. And like, didn't do the last lap. So I'm out on the last lap while they're literally cleaning the course. And the like, people are like taking the stuff down and everyone's gone. And like the light, there's no lights. I'm out there in my headlamp. Like, what have I done? What have I done? And I like come across the finish line. And I go inside. I'm like, where's Felix? He's like in there eating pizza. He like said, let's do one more lap. And he just like bailed entirely. I was so, I was so bummed, man. Okay. I have a funny story about a 16 year old boy at COP just because this reminded me of it, but I was on a COP is just like, the, it was where they had um, the Olympics in Calgary. I can't remember what year it was. Renee, do you remember what year it was? 88. 88. It was before our time. It was before our time, but it's just like this weird little dinky hill and like fun statistic, the majority of ski hills in the Rockies maybe have like five, a couple hundred, like 500 sled calls, COP on average has 1500 a season. It is insane. It is a freaking mosh pit up there or like something around that. Um, but I was skiing and learning how to ski park at 24 years old. And I had a pair of atomic skis, the punks that were next year's skis. And I was in front of this like 16 year old male crew who were like, doing all these tricks I don't even know the names of while well, I was learning how to like slide a rail for the first time. And this 16 year old boy was behind me and he had the same skis that I had on, but the year prior. And he was like, yo, are those next year's punks? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, how'd you get them? You fucking suck. Rude. I know. And I was like, I remember this. Oh. I was just like, where is your mother? Like, what i was like step out of the park buddy let's fucking go like i'll take you in a big line <laughs> screw you. oh my yeah. gosh respect your elders kid <laughs> i don't think i looked like an elder i'm very short <laughs> <laughs> i think they were just like very confused but so freaking funny um but yeah i like i'm also really slow with transitions so this year i mean i made a joke with my boyfriend because i was like we should time it and then like visualize all the data about how I improve over a season for like ascent to descent transitions. And now we're actually doing it. So I got my transition time to descent down to seven minutes and 30 seconds, which wasn't too bad. That's, awesome. That's hilarious. He's actually timing you. And I also <laughs> I support it. that because I know how slow you are getting ready. So shut up. I'm working. I'm, I'm hoping that this can transition it. to other areas of your life. I do feel like a little bit of a um, transition. Uh, yeah, I probably should. I, I'm a fan of the fast transition, but I'm okay when I go out with people who, who want to do a slow transition and take their skis off, sit down, have a snack. Yeah. Um, but I do. Yeah, I feel like I feel like schema racing made me like this annoying fast transitioner, but I do feel like it translates to like an important skill to have in the mountains. And I actually have another memory that I will just like quickly share because you guys were asking earlier about my progression and schemo racing really was an important part of that. And I'm actually remembering now it's coming back to me like the first time I skied a couloir was in a schemo race. 
and I didn't know there was a couloir in this race. It was the Bridger Bowl skin to win in um, Montana. And I went along with a friend. She was like a super fast, like pro racer. And she was like, I'm going to do the pro course. Like you should do the rec course. Like, let's just go do this thing together. And we like went and they had like a pre-course safety meeting, which I've never had at a schema race before. At that point, I'd done all these like really mellow, like blue square scheme, like literally blue square on a resort schemas races. And um, I'm, we're at this pre-course safety meeting and they're like showing the terrain. I'm like, oh my God, what have I signed up for? It's like the side of Bridger Bowl where like you need a beacon to ski, you know? And at, at this point I've been like, skiing skiing like the groomers and the schemo races and otherwise that mellow like treed like 25 degree slope so it's like all right I guess I'm doing this so I'm like booting up the ridge I'm like in third place the whole uphill like feeling really strong like going super fast and like at 10,000 feet you know and I'm like wow this is awesome I'm crushing this race I get to the top of the <clears throat> ridge and it's this like technical ridge walk and I'm like oh crap and I'm like skinning trying not to fall skinning downhill it was just like a nightmare I was like knife edge ridge fucking terrified and I get to the end of it and it's a cool art like I have to drop a cool art and there's these two ski patrol dudes there and they're like you know watching the race and by now people have been passing me on the ridge I'm no longer in third place and I'm like fuck all right I like do my transition and I say to the ski patrol guys I'm like you guys have eyes on me right <laughs> they're like what <laughs> you're in the schema race like what are you doing I'm like it's fine it's fine it's my first cool R and they just like stared at me and I was like whatever so I, I drop in and I just started crying in the cool R I stopped and I cried in the cool R <laughs> I just stood there as everyone skied past me crying <laughs> oh it was rough but I did but I skied that cool R <laughs> You did. And it's okay to stop and have a moment with yourself where you cry, have a mild panic attack, and then you keep going. I have done that mountain biking. Not Sometimes really you got to. We've all been there. Sometimes you got to. <laughs> yep. I call it a cry and rally, a quick CR, an oil change, have some water, shed some tears, keep going. Yeah. I used to work on patrol, so I had it... <laughs> where like maybe this is like more the internalized misogyny side of things where I've gotten myself into situations where you have to like air out of it or something. And it's on this resort and I'm like, well, I'm not calling Patrol to get me out of here. So I got to do it. <laughs> to be fair, those poor no way Patrol I'm dudes. Them. <laughs> no. And I like, those dudes were probably like, we're going to have to like save this girl. Like she's going to need our help survival skiing is a skill though like I you know like I side slip most of that cooler but I did it safely I was in control yeah. survival For me, is that I just knew everyone that worked patrol so I was like I can't I'll never li live it down I ha I have to just do this <laughs> you know like speaking of COP I used to work at ski cellar and we were doing a ski demo there with everybody in the industry like every single one of the reps all of the people from all of the stores and my dad has been a rep in the industry for 30 years so all these people knew me well and i got hit by my colleague who's six foot two and 200 pounds on this one hill this one run and he didn't even feel me but my other colleague was on the chairlift and said it sounded like a gunshot like he just sent me flying and i ended up like damaging my rotator cuff in my shoulder my si joint in my hip and i had bone bruising all over the left side of my body like it was so bad but when I like hit the ground, I took off my helmet. I was like, ski patrol came up and they were going to bring a sled. And I was like, I am not getting taken down in a sled at COP. I am not doing this in front of everybody. I'm not going to be that person. So I grabbed my shit and I walked down the mountain. <laughs> I was like, I'm... And I got to the bottom and I was just like, they're like, are you okay? I was like, no, I didn't say anything else. And I just went into the... Um, ski patrol like medical office and then I got taken to the hospital right away but I walked down I was like I'm not doing this oh and to this day everybody remembers me as that girl that got hit at the COP ski demo so that's nice they're like oh you're that person yeah that event changed a lot for us after that happened oh you're that girl <laughs> yeah I'm stubborn I was gonna say that is some mad stubbornness that you walk down the mountain I love it Yes. And I think it was purely adrenaline that got me down the mountain because when I was at the hospital and then I was in the hospital bed for a while after they did some x-rays and stuff, I couldn't stand up. So 
And I cried trying to take off my pants when I got home because it was so much painful. So I don't know. Adrenaline is a weird thing. Very weird. Yeah, weird thing. <laughs> As we wind down this interview, Emily, can you let everyone know where to find you? Yeah, um, you can find me on Instagram at emelex, E-M-E-L-E-X. Um, you can view my photos and find some of my writing at ajsullivan.net. Um, yeah, that's where I am on the internet. Any plugs that you want to do? Oh, we already yeah, kind of did them. <laughs> yeah, I'll still give a shout out to Volet. I mean, I have to thank them for believing in me and giving me this like rad platform in the industry and um, also just my mentors that <clears throat> helped me out in the beginning in Alaska Avalanche School, Alaska Mountaineering School. Um, I do also want to plug, like, these aren't my things, but I want to plug um, two orgs that folks should check out. It's Edge Pacific Northwest. It's Annette Diggs organization and Color the Trails, which is Judy Kasiyama's organization. We we're talking earlier about accessibility and affinity and scholarships. And those are two rad orgs to just check out and support. Awesome. Well, it's been really rad having you on today. So thank you for coming in short notice with us because we really appreciate it. And we had you on your, on our list. So stoked to track you down. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Thank you guys. This was super fun. Yeah. That was a sick conversation. I'm super jacked up on that. Um, might be the coffee too, but that's fine. Anyways, thank you everybody. Have a great Monday. We will see you next week.